The Gospel of Luke is the first volume of a two-volume series. Luke is a historian and he's a doctor. And he's writing this gospel to a man named Theophilus, who is probably a Roman official in the first century. Luke is a Gentile and he's writing to a Gentile. Now, his first volume has to do with the story of Jesus. His second volume, the book of Acts, has to do with the story of the early church. But what Luke is doing in these early chapters of his gospel is he's amassing witnesses to testify of the identity of who Jesus Christ is. And we've already seen many of these witnesses come forward. We've seen the angel Gabriel come to Mary in the first chapter. And what does he say? He tells her that you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And he says that holy child will be called the Son of God. And then later we find Elizabeth greeting Mary. And as she greets Mary, the baby in her womb leaps for joy. And she says, how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Now, keep in mind the testimony of these people. First of all, Jesus is the Son of the Most High, the King over the house of Jacob, the Son of God. Now he's Elizabeth's own Lord. Then we have the testimony of Zacharias, John the Baptist's father. When he prophesies, he calls Jesus a horn of salvation. Horn, the place of strength and power. Jesus is a powerful Savior. And he also calls him the sunrise from on high who will visit us. So the sunrise, the one who will make everything light and beautiful and take away the darkness and bring and shine his light upon the world. And then in chapter 2, we have the testimony of an angel. And the angel says to these shepherds on a hillside, Today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A little while later, we have a man named Simeon, an elderly gentleman to whom the Lord had revealed that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Christ, the anointed. And Simeon prays to the Lord and he says to the Lord, my eyes have seen, what? Your salvation. He's holding this little baby. And he says to the Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation. He is a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And then a little bit later on in chapter 3, we have the testimony of the forerunner, John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes and he says, I can baptize you in water, but there's one coming that is far mightier than I am. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and take off his sandals. I'm not worthy to be his slave. The one I'm talking to you about is going to baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire. And we talked about what that meant last week. To baptize in the Holy Spirit means to save somebody, to immerse them in the Spirit, to grant them new life by the power of the Spirit, a new heart, a new life. So Jesus is the one who has the power to baptize in the Spirit. He has the power to save people. But he is also the one who will baptize in fire. And when you look at the context carefully, it becomes clear that to be baptized in fire means to be baptized in judgment. It, what, what Luke is telling us here is that Jesus is mighty because he has the power to either save you or to damn you. 
He will immerse you either in the spirit to save you or in the fires of hell to judge you and to damn you. This is the mighty God who's come into the world. So Luke has been amassing these testimonies. Gabriel, Elizabeth, Zacharias, an unnamed angel, Simeon, and John the Baptist. And what's their testimony? He's the son of the Most High. He's the King of Israel. He's the Son of God. He's Elizabeth's Lord. He's the Horn of Salvation. He's the Sunrise from on high. He is Savior. He is Christ. He is Lord. He's God's salvation. He's a light to the Gentiles. He's the glory of Israel. He's the baptizer in the Holy Spirit in fire. But Luke's not done yet. He's going to call three more witnesses to the stand. God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and then he's going to pull out a genealogical record. These three witnesses. And he's going to show us something further of who Jesus is. So the witness of the Spirit, the witness of the Father, and then the witness of Jesus' own genealogical record. Now, last week, we were talking about what Jesus does. Jesus does two things. He baptizes in the Spirit, and he baptizes in fire. But this week, we're going to be talking about what or who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. And when we look at his baptism, we're going to see that Jesus is the Son of God. But when we look at his genealogical record, we're going to see that Jesus is the Son of Man. And when you put those together, you have a complete description of the identity of Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of Man, come to save sinners. Now this is important. I don't know if you have studied any of the cults. If you have studied non-Christian cults, you discover very quickly that they all have an aberrant view of who Jesus is. Almost to a T, they will deny the deity of Jesus Christ, that he's fully God. The biblical teaching is that Jesus is fully God and fully man in one single person forever. Okay, that's what the Bible teaches about his identity, and we're going to see that this morning. So let's zero in, first of all, on the fact that Jesus is told to us to be the Son of God. In verses 21 and 22, let's pick it up there and read the baptismal account. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Now let's take a look at the witness of the Spirit, first of all. The Bible says that when Jesus was praying there in the waters, he had just been baptized and he's praying, the heavens parted, the heavens opened up. And out of the heavens comes this figure like a dove fluttering down, hovering and resting upon him. What would be the purpose for that? Isn't it the Holy Spirit testifying to the multitudes that are on the banks of that Jordan River that this is the one? The Holy Spirit didn't descend on John the Baptist, and he didn't descend upon any of the other thousands that had come out to be baptized. He singled out one person, Jesus of Nazareth, and he descended bodily upon him. And it's the Spirit's way of testifying, this is the one. This is the Messiah of God. This is the Savior of sinners. Now, when Jesus is baptized, it signals the beginning of something. It's the beginning of his public ministry. 
And interestingly, before he even embarks on his public ministry, what happens? The Spirit descends. The Spirit comes upon him. And I believe God is seeking to testify to us something about the importance of the Spirit of God resting upon a person in order for him to to minister the way God wants him to minister. My own conviction, and you may not agree with this, but my own conviction is that Jesus did the works that he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not simply because he was deity, because he was God, And he did his works the same way that we must do our works, by the power of another, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to show you from Scripture why I've come to that conclusion. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now notice what he's saying here. He's at the very beginning of his ministry, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? For what reason? Because he has anointed me. It's another word for empowering. He has empowered me to do some things, to preach, to heal, and to deliver. Now, think about Jesus' earthly ministry for a moment. What did he go about doing for three and a half years, primarily? He was healing the sick, casting out demons, and preaching the good news. I mean, you read about those three activities over and over and over. And besides all of that, he was training 12 men to take over. One of them defected, but 11 men to take over for him once he went back to heaven. So he was raising up some disciples, healing the sick, preaching the gospel, and casting out demons. He was preaching, healing, and delivering people. He says here at the beginning of his ministry, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and the reason why is because he has given me the power to do the things that I'm about to do, to heal the sick, to preach the gospel, and to cast out demons, or to deliver people from satanic oppression. And then Acts chapter 2, verse 22 Here is the words of Peter on the day of Pentecost. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just just as you yourselves know. Now here we're told that miracles, wonders, and signs were performed, how? Through him. Through him. God was performing those miracles through him. He was a vessel. He was an instrument. In the same way, folks, that we also are vessels and instruments that God wants to work through in the world to do his works. So here we're told that God was working through Jesus of Nazareth to do these miracles, wonders, and signs. And then Acts 10.38, here's Peter again preaching to Cornelius and his household. He says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now take a look at that one. God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and power. For what reason? To heal those oppressed by the devil. To go about doing good. So it's my conviction that the Spirit of God was given to Jesus so that he could do the things that he did. 
Now, of course, Jesus was God and he never ceased to be God. But he didn't independently exercise those attributes, but relied upon the Spirit of God to fill him and empower him to do the works of God. Now, I can't be certain whether Jesus did everything in his earthly ministry by the power of the Spirit, but the testimony of Scripture so far seems to indicate that that was the leading, enabling ability that Jesus had to do those things. Think about it again in Matthew 12, 28. There were religious leaders that were questioning Jesus. And they were saying, you're doing your works, you're casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And Jesus responded to them, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How did Jesus cast out demons? According to himself. By the Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God, he did these things. In John 4.34, the Bible says, He whom God has sent, that's Jesus, speaks the words of God. For he, that is God the Father, gives the Spirit without measure. God the... The Father has given believers the Spirit, hasn't He? But He's given the Spirit to us by measure. In fact, over in Romans 12, it talks about the gift of faith that God has apportioned to each one. We have a, a, a different measure of the gift of the Spirit in our life. Jesus had no measure. When the Spirit was given to Him, it was immeasurable. It was infinite. It was boundless. No wonder He could do the things that He did during his earthly life. No wonder he could multiply loaves and fishes and walk on water. No wonder that he could raise the dead and heal the sick. The Spirit was poured out upon him without measure. So the Spirit descended upon him in bodily form as he begins his ministry to testify that this is the Messiah and to empower him to begin to do the works that God had called him to do. Now let's look at the witness of the Father. Secondly, the witness of the Father. It's important to realize that not only the witness of the Spirit, but the witness of the Father were public acts. Remember, it says that while all the people were being baptized, Jesus was also baptized. So he's being baptized. Well, there's probably hundreds, if not thousands of people that have come out. We know that because some of the other Gospels say that all Judea and Jerusalem were streaming out to be baptized by John. So you've got hundreds or thousands of people there. No doubt they saw some form coming down out of heaven resting upon him. And no doubt they heard with their own ears a testimony from heaven saying, You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. So there are three things that the father testifies to. Number one, Jesus is the son of God. He says, You are my son. You are my son. Now, John 5, 18. Jesus said, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself, what? Equal with God. The Jews understood that if somebody claimed that God was his father, that was to make himself equal with God. Now, why so? Well, because a son and a father share the same nature, the same essential nature. My sons shared my nature. They shared my genetic makeup. Jesus shares the essential nature of God himself. The Bible teaches 
that our God is a triune being. There is one God, but that one God has revealed himself as being an eternal trinity. Three persons, all of those persons being God, but those persons are not each other. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. They're distinct persons, but they all share the nature of deity. They're all God. Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. Jesus is the eternal Son of God made flesh. And so here, Jesus testifies that if I call God my Father, there in some sense then that that makes me equal with God. The Jews understood that. Jesus understood that. So Jesus is co-eternal, co-equal with his Father and with the Spirit. And these three persons of the Trinity all share the same divine attributes. All of them. Omniscience. All, they're all-knowing. They're all-present. They're everywhere at the same time. Uh, they're all-powerful. They are wise and good and just and loving and wrathful and gracious. They all share the same divine attributes because they're all God. So Jesus, according to the Father, is the Son of God. No wonder John would start his gospel and say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then the second thing that the Father testifies to is that Jesus is beloved of God. He's not just the Son of God, He's beloved of God. He says here, this is my beloved Son. And I think we're getting into really deep waters, because who can understand the kind of love between the members of the Trinity from all eternity? I mean, I can't. I can't fathom the depth of what that kind of love looks like or what that's like. But Jesus testifies to the fact that the Father loves him. The Father testifies that he loves the Son. In John 4.35, the Scripture says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son. That's why he gave everything to his son. Or John 5.20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. Or then, this is the one that I like especially, John 17.24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Isn't that just amazing to think on? Before there was a world, before there was any people on this world, before there was a world that even existed, before there was time, in the eternal past, before there were any angels, there were still three persons of the Godhead loving each other and enjoying each other and delighting in one another. And that's what Jesus is pointing to here. He says, the Father, you love me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus is the Son of God. He's beloved of God. Thirdly, he's pleasing to God. He says, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, if you look at the literal translation of the Greek there, and I did this in uh, Newberry's interlinear translation. You can take a look at it if you want to. He says that the literal rendering there is, in you I have found delight. The Father speaking from heaven, in you, my beloved Son, I have found delight. 
I have found joy in you. I have found pleasure in you. From all eternity, the Father found delight in his own Son. In Hebrews 1.3, the scripture says that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. So when God looks at Jesus, it's like God looking in a mirror. Because Jesus is the exact representation of God's own nature. He is the radiance of God's glory. So, do you think God enjoys considering who He is, His perfections, His attributes? I, I know He does. I mean, consider God. He's holy and righteous. He delights in holiness. He delights in righteousness. Well, where else to find the greatest righteousness than in Himself? And so He beholds His Son, and what does He see? He sees righteousness and holiness. He sees a mirror image of himself. And he delights in him and he loves him and he takes pleasure in him. So the Father testifies from heaven. This is the one. The Spirit testified. This is the one. The Father testifies that this is the one. And what do they testify? They testify that Jesus is the Son of God. That he's God in human flesh. But that takes us to the... The third testimony today, which is the testimony of Jesus' genealogical record. And the testimony of his genealogical record is that he is the son of man. The son of man. Now, I know that you guys just like more than anything else to read the genealogies of Scripture, right? I mean, you could just read them for days and never get tired. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> I read those and think, why in the world did God put these genealogies in the Bible for you ever th wonder about that? Why are they here? Just to take up space or what? Well, there are some important reasons for the genealogies of the Bible. Um, we're going to take a look at this genealogy in some detail, and we're going to see exactly what it points to. See, the, the Spirit testified that Jesus was the Messiah. And the Father testified that Jesus was the Messiah. But if Jesus doesn't have the right genealogical record, none of that matters. Because the Father had given a prophecy in the Old Testament. It was a prophecy to David. And he said to David, one of your descendants will sit upon your throne forever. So if Jesus is not the son of David... If his ancestry can't be linked back to David, well then forget about it. It doesn't matter if somebody speaks from heaven. It doesn't matter if something descends on him bodily. He's got the wrong, they got the wrong guy. He's got to be a descendant of David. And so the genealogy is concerned about showing us that Jesus' line goes back to David. But interestingly, we've got two genealogies in those Gospels. We've got one in Matthew and we've got one in Luke. And they're both different. Have you guys ever um, stayed up at night not being able to go to sleep because you're wondering why is Matthew's genealogy different from Luke's genealogy? I've been thinking a lot about that this week. Because if you compare these two, you would think, oh, they're going to be identical, right? Nope. <laughs> they're not even close. They're two opposite family trees. Let me give you some of the differences. Okay, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew starts with Abraham and he descends down to Jesus. 
Luke's gospel starts with Jesus and ascends up through David to Abraham, but he doesn't stop there. He goes all the way back to Adam, the son of God, it says. A second difference. Matthew lists 42 people in his. That's three lists of 14 names. We have a list of names from Abraham to David, and then a list of names from David to the deportation into Babylon, and then a list of names from the deportation of Babylon to Jesus. 14, 14, 14. 42 names. When you get to Luke's genealogy, there's 77 names. And that shouldn't surprise us because he's going back further than Abraham all the way to Adam, the creation, the first man ever created by God. The big difference between these two genealogies is this. When you look at the, the, the lists of names between Jesus and David and both Matthew and Luke, from Jesus to David, they're almost all completely different. Almost every single name is different in those two lists. And you're thinking, what in the world is going on here? If this is the same family tree in both Gospels, how can they have totally different names from Jesus to David? And what most scholars believe, and the way they solve this problem, is they believe that Matthew is giving us Joseph's line, and Luke is giving us Mary's line. You see, the legal right of heirship came down through the father. Now Jesus had no human father, but he was adopted by Joseph and raised by him. So the legal right to David's throne came through the father. And so Matthew, wanting to make sure that his readers understood that Jesus was Messiah, the king of Israel, traces the line down through David to Joseph, the legal father of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus inherits that right to the throne through his adopted father, Joseph. But when we come over to Luke's gospel, it's, it's different. And I need to show you something here in verse 23. It says, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Now over in Matthew's gospel, it says that the father of Joseph was Jacob. Luke tells us the father of Joseph was Eli. Now the same person can't have two different biological fathers. Are we agreed with that? Have you ever known anybody in the world who had two different biological fathers? And that's an impossibility. So if you've got one biological father that is Jacob, you can't have another one that's Eli. Something's going on here in Luke chapter 3 that we need to figure out. And the clue to this is this little phrase, as was supposed. Did you see that when we read through it? Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. Now what does that mean? It means that he's not the son of Joseph. They supposed he was... All the people around Jesus that saw him growing up thought that Joseph was his father, but he wasn't. Because Luke has already described for us in chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit is the one that caused Mary to conceive and to bring forth this son. He had no human father. So, in those days, genealogical records did not include the names of women. They just didn't do that. That wasn't the classic form of a genealogy. 
So how is Luke going to describe her line without mentioning herself? She'll do it just the way she did it. She'll say, Joseph, as was supposed, uh, the son of Joseph, Jesus as supposed was the son of Joseph. What that really means, it's a backhanded way of saying that Jesus is the son of Mary. Who, and then he says, of Joseph, the son of Eli. Now, if you were to spend time in the original language, you would see that there is a difference between Joseph, he's set apart, and the list of 77 names, his name is set apart and different from all the 76 other names. In other words, there's a difference between Joseph and all the other people in this lineage. And what we have here is that Joseph is the son-in-law of Eli. Eli is Mary's dad. We're tracing Mary's lineage through her father to Mary's father's father and all the way back through David to Abraham to Adam in the very beginning. So that's what's taking place here. Now there are only two genealogies that exist in the Gospels. Um, Mark doesn't have a, gospel, or a genealogy, and John doesn't have a genealogy. But think about this. Why was Mark writing his gospel? Who was he portraying Jesus to be? Anybody know? Servant. That's right, the servant. God's servant. Well, nobody's interested in the pedigree of a servant, are they? And so Mark doesn't even include one. Now, John's gospel. Who is John presenting Jesus to be? God. A genealogy is impossible when it comes to God because God doesn't have a genealogy. So John doesn't include one. Mark doesn't include one. Matthew and Luke do include them. And think with me through Matthew's early chapters concerning the birth of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Who's the main character? Who's the main character in Matthew chapter 2? Besides Jesus, of course, when they describe the birth event, it's Joseph. Do you remember the angel comes to Joseph and he tells Joseph, go ahead and marry Mary because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Don't divorce her like you've been thinking about doing. Go ahead and marry her. So the, the story revolves around the person of Joseph. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, when it comes to the birth account, Joseph's name is mentioned nine times. Uh, Mary's name is mentioned five times. But now go over to Luke's account of the birth. Who's the main character there? It's Mary. Mary's name is mentioned 11 times. Joseph's name is mentioned three times. And whenever Joseph comes up, it's almost like he's not even there. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't have any parts. You know, he doesn't, he has no audible parts. He just, it just mentions that he was there with Mary when they went up to Bethlehem for her to have this baby. So it makes sense then that Matthew, who's centering the birth narrative around Joseph would give Joseph's lineage. And then Luke, who's describing uh, the birth of Jesus and making Mary the main character, would describe Mary's lineage in his gospel. Now, what's the importance of all this? Think back of, to the purposes of both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, it says that Jesus was the Messiah, the King of Israel, descended from David, descended from Abraham. So Matthew is a Jew, and he's writing to Jews. And he wants these Jews to understand that Jesus is a Jew. Not only that, that Jesus is the King of the Jews. 
that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. And so he traces Jesus all the way back to who? The father of the Jewish nation, Abraham. But now Luke is not concerned about that because Luke's a Gentile and he's writing to a Gentile. And so he's not concerned about showing that Jesus is a Jew or that he is the Jewish Messiah so much. So he doesn't take Jesus back to just to David or just to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. He brings him all the way back to Adam, the father of the human race. Now, why would that be significant? Because if Jesus has, can trace his lineage back to the father of the human race, that means he's one of us. He's not just the savior of this one slice of humanity, the Jews. He has descended from Adam, one of the human race, to be the savior of the world, the savior of humanity. And that's what Luke presents him to be in his gospel. He makes a special point of showing that Jesus is the savior of sinners. He came to be the savior of the world. In fact, if you look at the gospel accounts, Jesus is said to be the Son of God 17 times, but he's said to be the Son of Man 84 times. So the Son of Man is a favorite title of the gospel writers for Jesus. He's human. He's fully man, just like you. He's every bit of human being as we are. The only difference is that he never sinned. He didn't inherit a sinful nature, and the sin of Adam was not put to his account. He came into this world absolutely pure, and he remained absolutely pure. But aside from that, he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. Fully human, but at the same time, fully God. So we'll put the definition like this. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man in one person, and will be so forever. Fully man. A man has a mind, emotions, and a body. Did Jesus have a human mind? Well, it says that he grew in wisdom. He must have had a human mind to be able to grow in wisdom. Did he have a human set of emotions? Or was Jesus just absolutely stoic? No, he wept, didn't he, at Lazarus' funeral? His, his gravesite. He, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible says, he says, my soul is deeply troubled to the point of death. Oh, he had emotions all right. He rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 10. Jesus rejoiced. He wept. His soul was deeply stirred and troubled. He had a human emotion just like you do. And he also had a human body because that body got tired. Remember the time he was sleeping in the back of the boat? And the disciples had to wake him up and say, Lord, we're all going to die. Look at the storm. And Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind and the storms. Peace, be still. And everything went quiet. He was wiped out. He was exhausted, sleeping at the back of the boat. He got hungry, didn't he? He needed to eat or he would die. If you pricked him, he'd bleed. He pricked God and he's not going to bleed because God doesn't have a body. God is a spirit. But Jesus was capable of bleeding. Jesus was capable of dying. And that's what was so important. I'll get to that in just a minute. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But Jesus was fully human. At the same time, he's fully God because he's co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, sharing all the same divine attributes. And let's draw all of this down to some life application. 
Why did Jesus Christ have to be fully man? Why was that important? There is a reason. If he was not fully man, there is no way any of us could ever be saved by what he did. Think about his life for a minute. You go back to the beginning, the Garden of Eden. It was a man who sinned. So, is it going to be okay for God to send an angel down here and to die? How could an angel adequately represent humanity when it wasn't angels that sinned in this particular way? It was men, it was people, it was men and women, boys and girls that have sinned and transgressed God's commandments and His law. So God can't send an angel, and God can't come down as Himself and do it either. Because as I just said, God can't bleed and God can't die, but yet the penalty of sin is what? Death. So someone's going to have to die to pay the penalty of sin. God, pure God, spirit alone cannot do it. So God devises a plan, and God devises this incredible, wise, infinitely wise plan. God himself will become a man, capable of shedding his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. He's capable of bleeding. He's capable of dying. He's capable of paying the debt that we owe to God. Over in Isaiah 53, 6, it says, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Now, do you think that it was possible for just a mere man like Adam to appear on the scene and to die for the sins of the rest of the world? Could he bear under the weight of the sin of the world? There's no way. It's going to take God to do that. Do you ever see those those t-shirts people wearing where God is bench pressing the sin of the world? <laughs> you know, it, it's going to take God to bear up under the sin and not totally be just disintegrated by that by the penalty of that sin. So he had to be fully man. But he also had to be fully God. If Jesus were not fully God, if he was just a regular old person, an individual, a man like you or I, that would mean that he'd be born into this world just like everybody else is born into this world with two human parents. And what would they have given to Jesus? A sin nature. So he would have Adam's sin on his account and he would have a corrupt nature that was transmitted to him through his two human parents and so he would be a sinner himself. So when he goes to a cross and dies, who could he die for? Himself. Nobody but himself. Nobody but himself. That's why Jesus had to be God. He had to be sinless. He had to be perfect. He had to be absolutely pure. He has to be fully man. He has to be fully God. God made him who knew no sin... That's an important phrase. To be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin, to receive the full brunt of the penalty of sin when He's dying there on the cross that we might have the righteousness that is in Him imputed to us, credited to, to our account by faith. So Luke traces Jesus back to Adam, the Son of God by special creation. 
Now think about Adam before he fell into sin. How does the Bible describe Adam in Genesis 1.26? He said he was, he was created in God's image. And before he fell, he reflected that image back to God beautifully. Love, lovely, in a lovely way, a, a perfect way. There was, he was innocent, he was sinless. Up to that point, everything was great. He, he shone back to God a glorious image of God himself. But when he fell into sin, that image was marred, it was spoiled, it was corrupted, it was shattered. And from the time of Adam, throughout the history of the world, there's only been one person who has ever reflected back to God God's own image in a perfect way. That's Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Luke 3.38 that Jesus was the son of Adam, the son of God. By special creation, God made this one of the dust of the ground. He reflected back to God his own image beautifully. But because that image was marred, we needed somebody else to come and undo the damage that the first Adam had brought into the world. Remember, the first Adam lived in paradise, in a garden. But he was driven out of that paradise because of sin. The second man, the last Adam, needs to come. The Son of God, the second Son of God, needs to come into the world and restore doomed, lost, corrupt, guilty, depraved humanity and bring them back into paradise where Adam was before he fell. That's the purpose of Jesus Christ, to restore all things. To restore us to God, fellowship with God, and to restore this world to God. The Bible says one day he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And there's going to be a beautiful new earth that we're going to dwell on and enjoy. And it's going to be heaven on earth because Christ himself will be among us. God will be among us. We'll see his face. He's going to restore all things. So my question to you this morning is this. Is he your mediator? Is Jesus Christ your mediator? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, the Bible says there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The man, Christ Jesus. Now what's a mediator? What does a mediator do? Have you ever had to go to, um, to marriage counseling and there's a mediator and you're fighting with her and she's fighting with you and you need a mediator? You need someone to draw the two of you back together so that there's peace? Someone that can remove the hostility between the two of you? Someone that can put a hand on one and a hand on the other and draw you together so that there's a loving, peaceful relationship? That's what a mediator does. We needed to be reconciled to God. Because we're born into this world, the enemies of God. Now, if you talk to the man on the street and ask him, are you an enemy of God? Of course I'm not an enemy of God. We're good. Me and the man upstairs, we've got a good thing going. You know, They don't think they're the enemies of God. But according to God's perspective, he looks down on the human race. And unless a person is in Christ, there is enemy. Sin has estranged them. Sin has brought hostility between God and sinners. And these sinners need a reconciler, a mediator, a go-between, an umpire, Job calls him. Someone who can draw the two together that they might be at peace. Now my question to you is, is Jesus Christ your mediator?
Is he your mediator? There's a profound statement in Jeremiah 2.13 that I want to close with this. Jeremiah 2.13. God says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. That's the first evil. The fountain of living waters. Here's the second evil. To hew for themselves cisterns. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, does anybody know what a cistern is? The Jews use cisterns. Yeah, yeah, it's like a container for water, right? And if, if you were in a drought, every drop of water was precious, and so you'd put these containers, sometimes on the roof of your house, um, and to let the rainwater fall into. And so the water would come down and fill up these containers. And that was a cistern. God is saying, you guys have committed two evils. You've forsaken me. That's evil number one. But you've forsaken me and replaced me with a cistern. Now, a fountain of living water? Okay, we don't want that fountain of living water. We want a cistern. What kind of water do you find in cisterns? Is it beautiful, pure? You just want to drink that? No, it's ugly and brackish. And this cistern isn't even a good cistern. It's broken. It's cracked. Water's leaking out of it. And God is saying... How can you be so crazy to forsake me? I'm the fountain, an ever-flowing, eternal fountain. I never run dry. Come to me forever and you'll never run dry. But you've forsaken that. You've got this dumb, broken cistern. Water's leaking out of it. How could you be so foolish, he's saying. And folks, the world is crazy because the world is doing the exact same thing. What is your cistern? What is it that you replace God with in your life? Is it drugs? Is it alcohol? Is it money? The endless pursuit of more money? It's a broken cistern. Is it some relationship that you feel you just have to have? What is the cistern that you have given your life to? Your master passion. What is your God? Whatever that thing is, if it's not Jesus Christ, you're committing idolatry. God is calling you, come to me and live. I'm an ever-flowing fountain. Drink of me and drink of me. He, God wants you to come to him. He wants you to drink over and over and be satisfied and be filled. But we so foolishly turn from the living God and try to find our satisfaction and our salvation in any other way. Sin has made us crazy. Foolish, idiotic to think that this broken cistern could somehow be better than God. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? The God of the universe is here and, and we fill up our time and our affections and our thoughts with a new car or a new house or a new computer or a new iPad or something that we think, oh, that's it. Now I'm really going to find satisfaction in that. We're just crazy. We've got a, an ever-flowing, infinite, eternal fountain. And God is saying, come to me and drink. Be satisfied. I will never be exhausted. So if your satisfaction is not in the true and living God today, come to him. Come to him. Trust him. Cry out to him. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved.
Turn. See, repentance is just turning away from cisterns. Broken cisterns that can never satisfy anyway. Repentance is turning away from the vain pursuits of sin that are just going to destroy you in the long run anyway. Repentance is turning from that and turning to the fountain and drinking. Have you drunk from the fountain, the living fountain? If you've never done that, I call on you today to trust in Jesus Christ. And if you, as a Christian, are finding yourself turning from the fountain to broken cisterns, repent. Repent. Turn away from those stupid, idiotic things that can never satisfy any of us anyway and find real joy, real pleasure, real satisfaction in God himself.